Hello and welcome to this episode of Thrill of the Hill. My name is Alec Perry and this is the Farm Advisory Service series where we discuss the hot topics impacting the farmed upland environment. In today's episode of Thrill of the Hill, I speak with the Soil Association's Ben Raskin and we discuss the growing opportunities for agroforestry in Scotland and across the UK. We cover the climate crisis and biodiversity decline, as well as the practical considerations on how to get started in tree planting. We also spotlight the Agroforestry Show this upcoming September. Hi there, Ben. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Good, good. Um, great to have you on the Thrill of the Hill podcast. Um, it's been a long time coming, so uh, no, glad to, glad to have you here. Ben, can we just get kicked off for the listeners? Can you give yourself a bit of an introduction and talk a bit about what the Soil Association does in terms of agroforestry? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I work mainly, I'm Ben Raskin, I work mainly um, at the Soil Association as the head of horticulture and agroforestry. Um, I also work for Helen Browning on her farm in Wiltshire and I project manage her agroforestry on, it's about 1500 acres altogether and we're gradually working up our plans to take over the whole thing with trees but a lot of it is rented land so that's not always easy. Um, my background is commercial vegetable production originally um, but I've been with the Soil Association for um, 17 years now uh, and been interested in agroforestry for probably about 10-12 years. I slightly lose track of when I first started getting into it uh, and I had a a, a sort of experimental system of my own. I rented a couple of acres near Bristol um, and the landlord went bust and I had to move all the trees and it was all very sad. But um, that, that sort of, I learned a lot through that. Um, and then put, so yeah, that's sort of where we come from. Um, and the Soil Association have been, again, actually mainly Helen and I have been sort of working on the agroforestry bit within the Soil Association for probably about eight years. Um, and uh, we do we do a whole range of stuff supporting farmers, a bit of policy work, campaigning work, um, and uh, yeah, and a big show coming up that I think we're going to talk about later. Absolutely, no, we won't miss that. Um, can you give us a bit of an overview? I mean, what what's your sense of what the uptake for agroforestry has been like in Scotland, but also across the the UK more widely? So it's, I mean, it is a bit hard to keep track because. I'm very lucky in my work in that I sort of work with probably some of the sort of most forward thinking farmers. Um, and so I, I sometimes get lulled into a full sense of security as to how many farmers are interested in this. But, uh, but I've certainly seen a huge shift in the last you know, five years from, from the number of farmers interested in, in trees on farms. Um, you know, I think, yeah, five, eight years ago, it was still a very small number of farmers that were taking it seriously. And I think I think that's changed hugely, um, you know, and we've seen that with the changes in policy in, in a lot of the devolved nations, you know, but it's, I guess my sense is it's becoming mainstream, it's becoming normalised, um, but but actually that's probably still with, I don't know, 5-10% of, of farmers, I imagine, and there's still, uh, I'm sure there's still a lot of farmers that remain to be convinced about the benefit of, of adding more trees into their farms, so. So Ben, this is Thrill of the Hill, and on Thrill of the Hill, we are primarily interested in issues that are impacting the farmed upland environment. Um, so to what extent do you think agroforestry meshes well with the farmed upland environment? 
I mean, my personal view is it's it's almost the the no brainer of agroforestry in some ways. Um, you know, it's the benefits are are so huge. I mean, it's more difficult to get the trees established sometimes. You know, obviously, you know, soils tend to be not quite so favourable. Conditions tend to be a bit harsher. You know, so getting the trees established and growing um, is is can be a challenge. But once you've got them, the benefits to livestock, you know, are are huge in my opinion. Um, and I think, you know, I think the relatively lower value in a way of the land makes makes it easier to, you know, to imagine taking a bit out of it to planting trees. If you've got grade one cereal land, you know, even taking a square meter of that is, is hard. But if you've got lower grade up and land, you go, well, I could afford to, you know, lose 5% for, you know, the 10, 15 years while the tree's established. And then actually after that time, you've got your increased productivity. So, you know, there is there's clearly a cost to doing it to start with, but, but I think the opportunities for upland farming are huge. So one of our previous contributors, Ben Law, one of our own woodlands consultants, um, had previously talked about the normalisation of trees in the farmed environment. And you kind of alluded to this earlier that uh, you do think that attitudes are changing. What do you put that down to, Ben? That's a good question. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I agree with Ben totally. I think I think we are, we need to see that normalisation. I think even beyond you know, the farm woodland, we're starting to talk at the Soil Association almost about, uh, you know, trees on farms in the widest sense, right from, you know, what might be an individual tree through to, you know, what people think of as agroforestry, to farm woodland, to regenerative forestry, to forestry, you know, there, there's no black and white line often with these things. Um, and I think, I think we are starting to see that a bit. I think there's still some fundamental challenges, and I think you know, the there's some there's some legislative you know land classification challenges still, although although that's improving for some of the agroforestry. And I think you know we're I think again in England we're hoping to see it introduced in elms next year. So you know actually having you know Scotland's already a bit far ahead. Having sort of things where you go, oh yeah, that's agroforestry, and I can understand what that is. It helps people to you know to to understand it and to normalise it. I think the, the there's still a challenge. I think a little bit with woodland and and forestry, and this because it re, it sort of requires your or or the assumption is that it requires you to take your land out of agriculture, and you know that that for me is the barrier. And I think a lot of woodlands you know, don't need to be taken out of agriculture. I think they can still be, you know, really useful for stock. And, you you know, even in quite, you know, heavily shaded woodland, you can still have grazing. You know, you can still have somewhere that that is going to be a productive area of the farm and, uh, you know, quite apart from the carbon and biodiversity benefits potentially. Um, so, but I think the other, the other thing that really needs to change to normalise it is we need to... Uh, improve the small the supply chain and the access to market for that smaller um, productive systems you know in in the same way that farming has ended up being polarized I think forestry is the same you know most timber production is done on you know in forestry you know and and, and farm woodlands have become uh, you know at best kind of just nice places for nature you know at worst totally neglected they're not seen as productive they're not seen as profitable or valuable um, but in the past you know that would have been very different all farms would have probably relied on their woodlands as part of their income and part of the you know how they made a living and I think 
you know, there are opportunities. I think there is, you know, there is small scale machinery. It, it, there are local markets. There's ways to do it. I think it's just that it's become um, separated from farming somehow. Um, and I think, you know, if we can, if we can find a way to to bring that expertise that foresters have uh, and that the timber market has, but try and and build some of those smaller scale, more local markets, I think that will really help farmers to see a value in it. And you know, if they're valuing it and managing it, they're more likely to plant more and look after what they've got. And Ben, you just touched on something that's actually quite interesting, which is agroforestry means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. We've had a couple of woodland consultants on the podcast now, and everybody kind of gives a different idea of what they mean by agroforestry. So when we're discussing agroforestry, particularly in the upland situations, um, what what are we talking about? So the way I like to describe it is is the deliberate integration of trees into farming. Um, because I think you can quite you can get very sort of sidetracked on definitions of numbers of trees or you know styles or all the rest of it. So and, and you know actually almost every farm I would say you know will have at least one tree on it. Um, you know does that mean that they're agroforestry farms? Well, not necessarily. And so so in a way it's the it's the intent almost rather than the rather than the, the resource. And it's that for me it's about valuing trees. It's about understanding the you know, the role they have in a, in an ecosystem, in a landscape, um, and, you know, and appreciating, I guess, the value that they can bring and being able to, to manage them as part of your farming system rather than, rather than separate. So that's, that's how I tend to think of it. And, and in that way, you know, yeah, you can bring in everything from a tree right up to a, you know, a woodland or, or regenerative forestry. And I can totally see the value in having an area that cattle or, or sheep can graze, particularly through the winter on, a, on an upland farm. I think, you know, that's valuable uh, in terms of as an asset. How would you, how would you encourage farmers to, to take that leap and to, to actually get on and do some planting? And, and what are kind of the long-term considerations for somebody who just wants to get started with it? So, I mean, the first thing I tend to talk to farmers about is, you know, actually what they've already got on their farm. You know, so it doesn't necessarily mean rushing out and planting stuff. Um, you know, it might just mean changing the way that we manage our hedges or, um, you know, or actually if you've got a bit of farm woodland that you're not using, starting to introduce stock to it, you know, at, at certain times of the year. Um, so often, you know, often there are tree resources already on farms that, that could be valuable. Um, and before you go to the expense and trouble of, of putting new ones in, you know, actually making sure that you're using existing ones. Um, but if, you know, if you haven't got any, or if, you know, if you're at that stage where you go, well, yeah, I've got some, I'm using them. Then, then I, I definitely am a believer in planting smaller numbers of trees each year. You know, I'm, I'm get, getting more and more nervous about big plantations i think we we sort of rush into these sort of big areas partly because of targets and the, the feeling that we need to do stuff partly it's driven by grants um and you have to plant it within two years and suddenly you've got you know thousands of trees that you've got to get in and then you know in a year like last year you can't water them uh you know if, if you know i imagine most upland farmers are not going to be able to irrigate plantations it's not going to be feasible so so i would much rather see you know, maybe planting 
500 trees or a thousand trees a year, really planting them well, mulching them well, making sure they're well established, getting them in early. Um, and then they've got a good chance of surviving and, and living. And then you can do another, you know, 500,000 the next year. You know, we've definitely seen at Eastbrook the years where we've planted a lot of trees in one go, we've had more failures. They haven't grown away as well. Um, and so, you know, actually after, you know, we've been planting now since 2016, 17 at Eastbrook. And, um, you know, I'm convinced if we'd spread all of what we've planted evenly over those eight years, rather than we've had sort of three big years of planting, I'm convinced we'd have, we'd have had bigger trees in a lot of those situations than we have. Um, so yeah, I would say, and, and the other, the other thing, you know, I'm from a, a horticultural background if and if you know if I sowed a crop of lettuce and it didn't work I could decide next year to sow a different variety or to do it differently or not to grow lettuce you know but with trees they're in there for the long term and and we're only just starting to learn in a lot of cases um you know what's doing well and what isn't after seven years you know I've got some quince trees that you know I've never had a problem growing quinces before I put them in and they just looked awful and I was on the point last year of digging them all out and giving up on them. And then suddenly this year, they're doing better again. You know, so I've, I've gone from kind of, oh, they're awful to, oh, actually, they're quite good to, oh, no, you know, and you sort of, and, you know, you need that time. You need a number of years to really understand whether those trees are working for you and, and like your environment. So, so taking it slowly and, you know, although in the one sense, yes, we've got this climate emergency, we need to be planting trees. It, actually in the in the life of a 200 year tree whether it's planted this year or in 10 years time doesn't make that much difference um you know if it's the right tree and it's looked after well then it will do better and how is the mindset different from those who are looking to um say plant productive timber and um, plantation versus versus agroforestry i mean i, I can I can see why people would do kind of large scale tree planting um, because obviously there's a big drive for, for carbon sequestration and, and addressing climate change. But presumably with agroforestry, there is a kind of more balanced focus on, yes, carbon capture, but also maintaining productivity at farm level and getting your, your nature balance right as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, clearly we need we need to be planting forestry as well as agroforestry. So, you know, certainly don't wouldn't want you to think I'm against planting, you know, trees for timber production. But I think, you know, the difference for me with agroforestry is that you can keep farming and the farmers, you know, will be able to to, you know, either look after the trees themselves because there's not huge numbers or, you know, potentially there's partnerships to be made with farmers and foresters where, you know, I, I know a lot of farmers are keen to have trees on their farm don't necessarily understand how to grow and, and manage trees and, and are quite happy to have a, a partnership with someone else. But the difference is that the focus is on that farm system rather than, you know, the trees are there to serve the whole system. Uh, whereas, you know, I'm guessing mostly in a, in a plantation, the tree is the, you know, it's the only output, it's the thing you, you're really concerned about and everything's geared towards that tree. Um, whereas an agroforestry system, you've got, you know, you've got a number of considerations, you know, particularly if you've got, you know, you might have sheep and cattle. So then you've got to balance the needs of those. You might be, you know, on some farms, you might be growing some crops as well. So that's got to fit into it. Um, you know, you've got to think about your labor requirements over the year and how that's going to fit in, you know, and, and then depending on what you, what your planned use for the trees is, that's another bit. So there's, 
you know, there's there's lots of factors involved. Um, whereas, you know, and I'm not a forester, but my guess is that you know when you're when when you've got a forestry plantation, it's it's much more focused just on those on those tree crops. And you mentioned productivity there. Are there any kind of rules of thumb for farmers who are looking to integrate livestock into areas of agroforestry? Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's like anything you need to do the research for your, you know, your breed and your land, you know, the, 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 you know, are you keeping them out all winter? In which case do you want, you know, tree barns, you know, there's lots of factors. How much browse do you want to give them from trees? Uh, you know, are you, are you looking, you know, if you, if you keep your livestock in at some point, you might want to grow wood chips to, to house the bedding, you know, so there's lots of different factors. Um, and I think it, it, it's quite hard to give general advice in a way because it's so, it's so farm specific. Um, but, but yeah, and there's, you know, there's increasingly, uh, more advice out there, more, more ways to get some of that. Um, I think, I think there's still a need for, uh, so for good economic case studies and for, for good sort of regional and local economic case studies, I think, you know, there's, there's quite good, um, research from from around the world uh some of which is relevant and some isn't but you know if if what i generally find is when a farmer comes to me and says do you have any you know business plans or case studies on how this crop works with this or this tree works with this animal in this situation you go uh no don't know of one for that you know because it's still in this country and it's relatively new um so i think you you can still in a way only base your planning on on you know the kind of best estimates from from generalized systems and and a bit of instinct but but you know definitely looking around and seeing seeing what does well in in your area you know looking at where where your stock move you know where do they want to be you know and then sort of modifying the environment to help them um you know so you know where the wind's coming from on your farm you know where they tend to shelter so, you know, letting those hedges grow bigger or augmenting them to shelter belts, um, you know, that kind of thing, really sort of understanding how your farm and your farming system works and, and sort of tweaking it and building on it is, is sort of how I tend to advise people to start. And Ben, one of the things that I particularly like about the idea of agroforestry is the ability to kind of connect and tie together areas of existing woodland across landscapes can you just outline some of the nature conservation benefits of agroforestry and what you've seen um, in your experience? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I, you know, I love the idea of connecting these these islands up, and definitely, I know you know a lot of farmers that are interested in this will do that. And I think increasingly, some of the funding will will be targeted to that as well. Um, and, I, and I guess what I've what I've noticed, particularly with agroforestry, and and particularly sort of where you have you know, either hedges or lines of agroforestry, they create a lot of edge, um, you know, and, and we know that those edges are where a lot of biodiversity happens. Um, and obviously, you know, woodlands are fantastic places as well, but they're a particular type of habitat. Um, and, you know, we, we saw our biodiversity um, increase very, very quickly when we started planting trees at Eastbrook. Um, and it surprised me actually how quickly we saw stuff come in. So, uh, you know, within six months of our first planting, we were suddenly seeing the barn owls and the kites and the kestrels come in. Um, you know, 
because we created lots of places for voles, you know, and obviously that's a challenge as well. Um, but, you know, we, we saw that. We saw, you know, because the land previously had been grazed by sheep. So the, the 200 acres that we started planting on had all been managed just as permanent sheep grazing. So, you know, it was fine. It was, you know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't in bad heart, but it, it was, there wasn't a lot of biodiversity there. Um, some of it was to do with the trees and some of it was to do with the fact that we changed the management of the grass. So, you know, it's, uh, it's not just that you're planting trees, but it's, it drives often a change in the way that you manage that land. So we went from that, you know, almost permanent gray situation to, in, in one field where we started just cutting for hay and silage, you know, our spider numbers just went ballistic. We suddenly, you know, in the spring, the trees would be covered in spiders. Um, we've got uh, meadow pipits, which apparently really love that kind of rough grass in between trees. Um, and, you know, and for us, they're, a, you know, they're one of the sort of target species that, that's in decline in Wiltshire. Um, you know, uh, by the third year, we had orchids back in that field. By the fifth year, we had the bee orchids as well as pyramid orchids. So, you know, some of those and, and you know, I'm sure there's lots of other stuff that we haven't been monitoring so closely. But some of those sort of key species that that, that we were sort of looking out for, we saw them come in very quickly. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's not surprising in a way you, you, you move from something that is, you know, short and, and, and grazed to something that's long and left to its to itself um so yeah i think i think there's huge potential to, to to boost biodiversity really quite quickly within agroforestry systems and on this 200 acres ben were you able to integrate livestock back into the the area quite quickly or was that a kind of gradual process so we've got some and some we're, we're trialing a few different systems so i mean that where i was talking to you about the orchids and stuff at the moment, we're hoping to keep poultry in that field. So it's been designed as a poultry system, but we haven't yet been able to uh, find someone to run poultry. And obviously, even food's a bit of a challenge as well. Um, so at the moment, we're we're not grazing that. That's being mechanically managed. Um, but in one of the other fields where we've got wider alleys, um, we've designed that so that that's continued to be grazed. So we've got rows of um, peri pear and alder and willow. Um, and then we've created, you know, paddocks in between those, which are rotationally grazed. Um, and then we've got another area that is essentially planted with stock excluded, but it will be a grazed woodland. So in another 10 years, potentially we'll be reintroducing stock back into that. Um, and then in another field, we've got these round all experiments where we've, we've sort of got these circular plantings with you know with main what will be a main central parkland type style tree in the middle of it and then we've got thorn and browse and uh, things like birch surrounding that to, to help it establish so in, in that field we've got these 10 roundels that will eventually be 10 sort of clumps of mature trees um so we're still going to be able to graze that field but but it just exclude them from the roundels so yeah i guess we're trying different ways of of bringing that in um, and there's a great farmer in um, Ireland that actually you might be worth having on the podcast called um, Fred Farrelly. I don't know if you've come across him. He's doing some really interesting stuff with um, with electric uh, wire um, on alleys of trees, but he's managing to get it so close to the trees that he's not losing any grazing. 
while the trees are establishing and that you know that's sort of the holy grail isn't it you know, oh god i'm you know because on some of our alleys you know they're 400 meters long so if you've got a you know meter on each side of that 800 square meters you know it's um it's quite a lot of of uh grazing to lose in a scene we've got you know then 20 of those rows it adds up um so if you can if you can find a way of doing it where you don't lose any grazing that makes the economics of it you know definitely easier and uh, you mentioned orchids, uh, orchids taking taking over um, in this land parcel. Um, how quickly did that happen? I mean, do, do you suspect that they were already there in the seedbed or, or did they kind of colonise over time? I think there must have still been some in there because they, so year three, basically, we saw our first ones. We had, I can't remember, we had like three or four in the first year and we all got very excited and, you know, ran around sticking stakes in it. Go, don't, don't cut that bit, don't cut that bit. And and then yeah, as I say, by year five, we we lost count at 140, um, and then that was including pyramid orchids. So the first couple of years, we uh, sorry, with the first couple of years we had pyramid, and then by year five we had some bee orchids coming in as well. Um, so and, and you know that field is next to a road with a hedge, you know. So I mean, I I'm not, I confess, I don't know how um, orchid seed travels, but my guess is it it must have been still in the in the sward and in the you know in the in the seed bank so and you've mentioned hedges a couple of times now how do hedges fit into agroforestry are they a kind of natural partnership or is is you know are they quite a distinct thing in themselves i mean i very much see them as part of agroforestry um you know and again they're they're sort of probably the bits of trees that most farms still have um i think you know unfortunately they've they've sort of moved often to a you know an annual flailing management which is you know a cost anyway to the farmer um and then it means that they're of, of not much value to the farmer either you end up with something that's not a great windbreak you know not great for biodiversity uh, you know an annual cost to a farmer um and then it becomes the hedge then becomes something that's not a lot of use it's short so it's not providing shade or shelter it's you know it's not got a lot of browse uh, you know, and it's all of those other things that a hedge could provide, it becomes less useful. Um, so, you know, I think moving towards less frequent cutting or potentially to a, you know, a coppicing and laying cycle. Um, so you've got different ages of growth and different stages of growth is, is better for biodiversity. Um, and, you know, potentially then gives you a, uh, you know, a product, whether that's, you know, logs for the fire or, or wood chip for, you know, building soil health or animal bedding, or whatever. Um, so, you know, I think, I think hedges can be a fantastic resource. Um, I think the, the economics of it are still marginal. And I think it's still, it's still tough to justify changing that management. So, you know, I, I definitely understand why, you know, why farmers um, still, you know, but, but, you know, equally cutting every three years rather than every year has got to make sense, I would have thought. Um, so, you know, I think, I think there's some easy wins in a way with hedges, even, even if you sort of don't go the whole hog. One of our, uh, our senior consultants that I do quite a lot of work with, um, a couple of years ago now, we had a running joke about whether or not we should be producing materials relating to tree hay, um, so uh, just wh while you're talking about hedges and the practicality of them, is that something that you've come across with the uh, agroforestry at all? Yeah, absolutely. And it, there's, you know, there's definitely a growing interest in it. I think it's really hard to make it 
pay, you know, to justify doing it on any scale at the moment. I think it's, you know, you need a lot of space for drying. It's, it's kind of fiddly at a time of year when you might be doing other stuff. So I think, I think the, yeah, the economics of it is still pretty marginal, but there's, there is growing interest. And the other thing that I know people are looking at is tree silage and wood chip silage. So, um, you know, chopping willow, for instance, um, and, and ensiling it and then feeding it over the winter. We've got a, actually an innovative farmers um, group looking at um, turning willow into pellets to add to feed for sheep. Um, so I think some of this stuff, uh, you know, is happening and will happen more if we can find ways to do it economically. Um, but I think at the moment, unless you're doing it on a relatively small scale, it's quite hard to, um, you know, to get the volume to really justify it. But I think, it, you know, to me, it makes perfect, perfect sense to use trees more to, to feed livestock. It's, you know, they're more resilient than grass. Um, you know, they're timing wise, you can you can go in and, you know, you could cut tree for hay at times when you probably wouldn't be able to cut your grass for hay, you know, so there's there's lots of ways, I think, that make them more flexible. But yeah, economics is, is tricky. And earlier, Ben, you mentioned this kind of 10 year period um, before you can get in and graze your agroforestry. Is that a kind of typical time scale? I mean, is that what farmers should expect if they're going down the route of agroforestry? Yeah, I mean, I would say 10 is the minimum. I think more likely to be 15. Um, it depends a little bit on your soil and, you know, your climate and your tree species um and you know and how you plant and look after them so as an example in that you know in that woodland grazing system that i mentioned earlier um we had one corner um where we uh, threw a whole load of wood chip over the fence we pollarded some willows and and i meant to move it around and, and mulch a load of other trees and forgot so there's a corner of the the field had two and a half foot of wood chip mulch around the trees um, and, and those trees are now, you know, 20 plus feet tall and the ones next to them planted on the same day that ha had a sprinkling of wood chip are still only four foot high. Um, you know, so if everything had had that big mulch, um, you know, I could be going in and grazing them in a couple of years time. Whereas the reality, I think for most of those trees, it's going to be, you know, another 10 years, probably before they're big enough. Um, and. You know, so so then you have to play it by ear. I think the other thing that we that I'm quite interested in playing around with, but I haven't yet got to the point where we've been able to is, you know, a lot of this is about timing. So if you I think if we let the cattle in and left them there for a week, every tree would be destroyed. If if we let them in for three hours and got them out again, they probably wouldn't touch much of the trees you know they might eat a bit of the leaf but mostly they'd sort of just trample about a bit and then come out again so i think you know with a lot of these things there's, there's definitely the key is speed of movement stocking densities um you know being observant keeping an eye on it you know where you see really bad damage with trees it's it's where they've been left in too long they've run out of grass to eat and and that's when they start eating the bark and all the rest of it you know most trees will cope with a bit of nibbling from the from the leaves what you don't want is them destroying the the young trunks but again i think depending on the size of the animal and the type of animal you probably could go in earlier if you were really careful and got them out quickly and uh, what kind of costs are associated with with agroforestry if i wanted to kick off um let's say not not a huge project but something moderate scale 
Um, something along the lines of what, what we've previously discussed. I mean, what, what kind of costs are associated with that? Uh, well, you know, this is another one of these it depends questions, I'm afraid. So um, <laughs> we had a session we ran at Groundswell where we had two farmers talking about it. One farmer reckoned they were spending about three or four pounds a tree and the other 60 pounds a tree. <laughs> um, so, you know, the, the, again, the, the variables are the type of tree. So, you know, if you're if you're buying a, I don't know, you know, a thorn whip, it'll be 30p. If you're buying a walnut tree, it'll be 25 pounds. So, so there's a, you know, there's that difference. And then obviously the walnut tree will be five times the size. So it will cost you more to plant it and stake it. Um, and then because you'll be more nervous about it being eaten, you'll spend more on the guard to guard it. Um, so, so you've got, obviously you've got to buy the materials. You've got to buy the tree and a guard and a stake, and, and then you've got to protect it. Um, and there's, you know, lots of different ways of protecting it. Uh, you know, it might be an individual tree guard. It might be, you know, fencing a group of trees and, and doing stock fencing or electric fencing around it. You know, on bigger plantations, you might have to put deer fencing up and all of, you know, all of those have different costs associated. Um, and a lot of this is around, you know, we, we, we do at the farm, we spend a lot of time talking about fencing and different fencing options. And it's, you know, it's all about cost versus risk. You know, you could deer fence everything. Um, and be and be certain it was going to survive, uh, but but then equally, you know, it wouldn't be worth it. Would you know, we we spent on one eight acre field ten years ago. We spent twelve thousand pound fence deer fencing it. You know, and for us in that field, it had lots of expensive fruit and nut trees. It was worth doing, but in the other fields, we wouldn't have done that. Um, so so it's, and and so you got all the planting costs, and then obviously you've got ongoing management costs which will be you know much less than that planting cost but you know the pruning the mulching possibly replanting restaking um you know if you're depending on 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 the type of tree you might then have to harvest or you know coppice it or whatever so there's all of those costs um but it's we're working on some economic modeling that's coming out um of the agroforestry carbon code project we've been working on because we were trying to work out uh, you know, how much difference having things like, uh, you know, maintenance payments, carbon payments, biodiversity payments, how much difference that would make to the economics of agroforestry systems. And, and it, interestingly, from, from the initial modelling that Finance Earth, who are one of the partners, have been doing, it looks as though over 50 years, those payments are pretty marginal compared to the productivity or the, the value of the crop. Um, but what you do have is you have this initial probably five to 10 year period where you've got to pay all the money up front and you're not getting anything in return. So so it's almost sort of, you know, if if you can get, you know, a grant or payments that enable you to do the planting and look after it for the first few years, then actually by, you know, year 10 or year 15, any, you know, whether it's a productivity benefit from, uh, you know, livestock being happier and more productive or whether you're producing a crop of apples or whatever it is you know that should more than pay for for your management costs um so you know obviously getting some extra payments is good but it it probably won't be the um the be all or end all of having a good system that that works financially and you mentioned walnuts and apples there how popular are they in terms of 
producing a, a fruit or a nut, you know, how important is that for people who are planting um, new agroforestry projects? Or do you find that there's still a lot of, you know, native broadleaf planting on the go? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, probably for most upland farmers, that's the way to go. Um, you know, I think it's it's harder to produce successful fruit and nut crops um, in the uplands. I think, you know, damsons probably might do well or, or you know, there's certainly some of the hardy apples on vigorous rootstocks might do all right. Um, but it's, you know, it's harder. And I, I, I tend to I tend to put people off planting apples at the moment um, just because it's often sort of a, a go-to thing, you know, it's something we all understand, you know, yeah, apples grow in England, we can, we can do apples, um, you know, let's plant fruit. Yeah, apples will be all right. There'll be a market for that. And I think, you know, it's, it's not easy actually making money from apples. I think if you've got a local outlet, so if you, you know, you've got a farm shop or a box scheme or something and you know you can put them through that, then that's great. Um, but I think, you know, if you're, thinking you're going to make money from selling apples wholesale, I think probably you're not. Uh, and the juicing market is is not that great at the moment. Um, you know, it's, it's classed as a sugary thing. And so sales are, are declining a bit. Um, and the, you know, the economics of juicing and making a profit are marginal. So, so I would, you know, unless you know you've got a good local market, I probably wouldn't advise growing apples. Um, I think there's a lot of interest in nuts. Um, and, and there's certainly a huge market for them. Um, you know, we import, yeah, I mean, millions of pounds worth of, of nuts and the market's growing, consumption's going up. Um, uh, you know, again, you know, you've got to be able to grow them on your land. So that's definitely a, you know, a consideration, but there's, there's a lot of farmers putting in, you know, nuts and, uh, certainly. So I, I think I, I, I can't imagine we're going to, we're going to be oversupplied in UK nuts anytime soon. Certainly, the problem is going to be it's going to be whether we can process them and you know, all of that stuff. But it's building that capacity where we haven't had it. And just on the capacity thing, then, what do you think the main threats are to the success of agroforestry projects in the UK? Good question. Uh, I think uh, I think I think if farmers. I really understand what their objectives are from the trees. I think that's the key. You know, I think definitely don't sort of rush in and just plant trees. But if you really, you know, if you really get it right in terms of what you want those trees to deliver, you know, is it about shade and shelter? Is it about browse? Is it about, you know, growing another crop that you can sell? You know, because trees can deliver any number of objectives. You know, any, any one tree species will deliver four or five different objectives at least. Um, and, and so getting that mix right, I think, is key. And, it, and if they're done for that reason and they're planted to benefit the farm and the farming system, then they're much more likely to succeed. You know, you, as a farmer, I'm going to be much more interested in looking after a tree that's delivering something rather than just, oh, I got some money to plant up that corner of the field. I don't really know what it was going to do, but they were offering a grant and I wasn't making any money cropping it. Um, so, you know, if, if you've made a conscious decision to plant something with a particular benefit in mind, then you're invested in it and you're going to look after it. So so that to me is the key. It's, it's about, you know, it's about getting the getting that decision making process right at the beginning and spending a bit of time looking at your farm and what you want the tree to do. And then I think, you know, you're still going to have, you know, you're still going to have problems where, you know, it's, it's dry all summer and they don't succeed. You know, you, you, like anything, you've got to 
you've got to fight nature or work with nature. But but if if the choice is right at the beginning, I think then you know most of them will work. And uh, Ben, just winding down the podcast now, you mentioned it at the very beginning there. Um, I'm told that the Soil Association is holding the UK's first agroforestry show in September. Can you just give the listeners an idea of what they can expect from that? Yeah, certainly can. So we're hosting it in collaboration with the Woodland Trust. Um, and it's uh, it's going to be held at Eastbrook, the farm where we've been talking about today. Um, there's We've got speakers. So we've got four tents with, with different speakers in. Uh, we're going to have some practical demonstrations. We've got a design clinic. Uh, we've got farm walks. So a lot of those sort of different systems that I've talked about earlier, we're going to have a look at all of them. Um, and, you know, lots of exhibitors as well. Uh, there's going to be a big party in the evening of the first day. It's a two-day thing. Um, so, yeah, really, really exciting. Um, it's it's um, <clears throat> we're, we're sort of thinking of it as a, a mini groundswell for trees. <laughs> so, so, yeah, those are those farmers that have been to groundswell and know about it. It's kind of a, a, like that, but focused on focused on trees. Well, we'll certainly put the details for that in the show notes for this podcast. But um, correct me if I'm wrong. It's It's the 6th and the 7th of September. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's and it's near Swindon in Wiltshire. So I appreciate a bit of a trek for for a lot of your listeners, but um, but hopefully well worth it. And uh, Ben, can I just get some closing thoughts from you? Is there uh, anything else that you want to add to the conversation today? How do people get in touch with you? How do we hear more from you? Um, and uh, and how do people find you online? So I'm, I'm quite findable online. Um, you can find me over on the Soil Association sort of meet the team pages. I'm on Twitter at, at Ben underscore Raskin. Um, and on Facebook, we've got a Agroforestry UK Facebook page um, that you can join if you want. Uh, so yeah, definitely get in touch. Um, we're, we're really keen to support um, learning networks for farmers interested in trees so um, we've got uh, we've got various groups we've got one in Scotland that is sort of um, we're waiting for a bit more funding to reinvigorate it but um, so so we're sort of fundraising for that but yeah if people uh, want to sign up for agroforestry newsletter they can they can sort of get in touch with me um, but yes be raskin at soilassociation.org is my email if people want to get in touch that way as well so that's great. Well, Ben, thank you very much for coming on through all the hill this afternoon. I know I've certainly learned an awful lot. I've thought this was really interesting stuff. Um, hopefully we'll get you back on the podcast at some point. But uh, until then, on behalf of the Farm Advisory Service, um, thank you and goodbye. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Thrill the Hill. If you've enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and follow this podcast. Leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can find all our details at the bottom of our show notes below. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.